Cristo. Take your Bibles together and let's look to the Gospel of Matthew. If you're not real familiar with the Bible, just take a look at the contents there at the beginning, the table there, and it will show you that Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. So go to that book, and I want us to look together at the 16th chapter, beginning in verse 21 today. By the way, if you're a guest, there's a card that's in the seat jacket in front of you that looks like this. It's our connection card. Do me a favor and fill that out, and at the end of the service, I'll try to remember to remind you, go drop that off at the tent that is right outside. We have a gift that we would like to give you that includes a gift certificate to a local coffee shop that we really enjoy, and we wanted to share that gift with you. I, by you doing that gives me an opportunity, as long as along with our staff, to pray for you by name, and Kay and I will be hosting a dinner at our house in a couple of weeks, and we'd love for you to be there uh, to engage us together as we learn each other a little bit more. So fill that card out and just hand it to those folks at the tent, and that'll be a big help for us, and I think it will be a blessing to you. Now, Easter is a time that you and I really celebrate. It's really one of my favorite times of the year, if not the favorite time. Uh, it's the time that it reminds me about the newness of life that Christ has given to us who are by faith in Him. But uh, even though we're celebrating it from Good Friday all the way through to this morning, Easter morning, the people in AD 33 were not very celebratory. In fact, they were the opposite of that. They were confused and they were hurt. They were really filled with sorrow. They were, in a way, sensing hopelessness. Even on the resurrection morning, Although the news was good from heaven, from the angelic host that was coming as announcing the resurrection of the Messiah, they didn't quite get it. They were having a hard time with it. And even when the news got to the apostles, they were having a difficult time comprehending it. It was too much. And the reason why they were having such a hard time is because their expectation had been towards something that was radically different from reality. So this 16th chapter of Matthew gives us some insight to that. Maybe some of you are experiencing some, I don't know, anxiety, some confusion about where God is in the midst of your circumstances. This passage is going to help you. For those of you who are wondering about life, is there really a meaning, a deep meaning to life? Is this whole idea of Christ real? This passage is going to help you. And if you're struggling with how do you live the most significant life possible, this passage will help. So I want to begin in verse 21. Now, if you're a regular at Meadowbrook, you know that I'm skipping a section that we haven't yet gone through as we're moving verse to verse through Matthew. I'll come back to that one next week. But let's go to verse 21 because I think it will help us today as we think about Easter and, and all that's transpired. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. If I had my Bible, my journal Bible with me, I would underline and circle the word must. That's a big word that Jesus is sharing with his disciples. You might do the same in your Bible. That he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day to be raised. Excuse me, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, 
but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each, according, each person according to what he has done. Now, in the part that I skipped, which we'll talk about next week, Jesus has asked the disciples about, so what are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? And they give a, some random answers. But Jesus locks in and he says, but now who do you say that I am? And we'll, again, address this next week, but that really is the most important question of your life and mine. Who do we say and understand Jesus Christ to be? Well, Peter stood up and he begins to proclaim exactly who he believes Jesus to be. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now that term Christ and that phrase we've heard, if you've been in church, you've heard it many, many times. But we just need to pause and remember what that, what that means. When Peter is testifying that Jesus is the Christ, he's saying, you're the Messiah. You're the king of God's kingdom. You're the anointed one that has been written about all the way from Genesis 3 and throughout the Old Testament scripture. You are the answer to our great need. You're our hope. Now Jesus recognizes that they have truth and he recognizes that kind of truth only comes from God the Father. But he wants to frame it up so that they understand exactly how he is anointed and what he is anointed to do. Because the expectation that the disciples have of what the Messiah is going to do and how he's going to accomplish it is radically different from what Jesus is going to, tra what is going to transpire in Jesus' life, which has been planned from eternity past. So he begins to tell them that the Messiah must go to Jerusalem. And he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. Now, look at the passage. There's some uh, connective conjunctions along... Uh, let me have that other one uh, go on to the next one, if you will. Oh, there you go. Uh, by the time you do this a few times, you kind of skip around, and uh, the people in the back are wondering, where the heck is he? Uh, we'll get in sync in a minute. Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem and must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, I think the emphasis is not just on the connected words there and, but that must ought to go with every one of those. Jesus is saying, I must go to Jerusalem, I must suffer, and I must suffer at the hands of the elders, to chief priests and scribes, and I must be killed, and I must be raised on the third day. Now, when the disciples are hearing that, obviously they are incredibly troubled. They're wondering why it is that this is an upside-down kingdom. That this is a, an inside-out kind of kingdom that Jesus is describing. It's exactly the opposite of what they thought it would be. They thought Jesus would come with the angels in the glory of God the Father, and he would establish his rule and his reign. Now let me show you the passage in its entirety on one screen. You're not going to be able to read it. But I want to show you, because this is a good way for us to study God's Word. Here's the entire passage that I've already read to you, and this is what the disciples are really longing for 
They want the Son of Man to come with the angels in the glory of God and establish his kingdom right here on earth. You put your throne right here on earth and you rule over us and all the world. Now that's going to happen. But it's not going to happen in the time and the expectation that the disciples had. In fact, what Jesus says is this is going to happen, but first, this must happen. First, I must suffer. First, I must die. First, I must be resurrected. And then I will return and I will come with angels and with the glory of my Father and we will establish this kingdom. Now, Jesus is telling them these things, but you know what Peter is doing along with the other disciples thinking, this is absurdity. This makes no sense whatsoever. Why would he come to suffer? Why would he come to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders by the death of the Roman cross? Of all things, the cross, the most shameful and horrific way for one to die that had been set aside only for those who were rebels and slaves. What is going on? Peter pulls Jesus aside and he sort of gives him that same rebuke saying, why, why are you thinking this way? This shall never happen to you. They were really struggling with this. I, I recognize they were saying, we don't want to surrender all of our life in order to pursue you so that you could go to a Roman cross. And I think in the essence they were saying to themselves, and we do not want to follow you all the way to the executioner's stand. Really troubled the disciples were. It gets that way when we have an expectation of God that isn't matched with God. I catch myself there sometimes, wondering, where are you, God, in the midst of this? This didn't meet my expectation. Where are you? Certainly the disciples were there. Now, what they were seeing was what the Roman world wanted them to see. They wanted to be the cross to be a place of shame, of guilt, of rejection, in fact, the listing that's coming on the screen right now are all these things that the cross was meant to personify. Guilt, shame, rejection, suffering, punishment, and death. When the disciples hear Jesus talking about the cross, I'm going to the cross to suffer and die, they're locked into this idea of what the cross is meant to for guilty people, to put people to shame, people who are rejected and suffer and bear the punishment and the wrath of Rome and die. You and I would agree with that. The cross is meant to do all those things. So why is Jesus going to the cross? Why must he do that? Because he has come to experience us in our brokenness. He's come to relate to us in the midst of our brokenness. You can't get more broken than that. And Jesus comes to engage us in the very midst of our darkest and deepest brokenness as mankind. But what is he doing there? He's enduring that so that you and I would not have to endure that. That guilt could be removed, punishment could be removed, uh, rejection could be removed. And he's exchanging it for these things, forgiveness and acceptance and healing and reconciliation and life. So Jesus is taking all of that brokenness upon himself and he's exchanging all of this wholeness of God to those who will have faith and believe. So Jesus is accomplishing on the cross what we genuinely needed him to accomplish first. He's accomplishing 
true life, the genuineness of life that God has prescribed for us. He's freeing us from slavery to sin and death. By embracing that, by bearing it himself. He's he's bringing into this world the kingdom of God. There he is suspended between heaven and earth on the cross. And he's bringing, if you will, the bridge of the kingdom of God to come to earth. He is freeing us from the enslavement that we've been in as people unto sin and death. Could not get away from it. So Jesus comes and he breaks those shackles and he frees us there on the cross. Now, the image of the cross is meant to be horrific. That was part of the Roman way, that if we can make it so heinous that people will see that and be revolted by it, they would never, ever defy us as Romans. But it's not just horrific for that sake. The image of Christ on the cross is horrific and ugly and brutal because he's bearing our sin. I'm not very artistic. Honestly, I've wanted to be all my life. I can basically draw a box and make it two-dimensional, and that's about as far as it gets. But if you were going to ask me, would you draw for us rejection and guilt and sin and shame and death? If I could draw, if I could paint on a canvas, I would want to do it like this 1611 canvas by Sir Anthony Van Dyke who is really enamored with the cross and the Savior on the cross. He painted it multiple times. This is one of my favorites. When you look at that, you see the sin and you see the rejection. You see the humility and the shame that was brought upon him. You see the darkness, don't you? And when you see that, you're experiencing exactly what the disciples were thinking. That the Savior has no business there. The king, the anointed one, has no business there. Van Dyke paints that very well. But if I could paint and I could put the beauty on canvas of acceptance and forgiveness and love and grace and life, I'd paint the same painting. Because when I see that painting, I see the love of God and the acceptance of God and the life of Christ given. So what we're finding in this text is similar to what we would see if we were in a gallery looking at Van Dyke's work. We would find people on different perspectives. We would find some who would be repulsed at the idea that the king of the kingdom of God would be hanging on a cross. But we would also find people that were moved and stirred with God's love and appreciation for so great a sacrifice. What Jesus is doing for us is helping us by seeing through the eyes of the disciples. You're going to see the same thing. It depends on what perspective you see it from. What you're seeing is from the perspective of the world. You're thinking, Peter, as the world thinks, as man thinks. You need to put your thoughts on the thoughts of heaven, on the thoughts of God. Man, do we ever need that. Some of you are experiencing very difficult days. I don't want to single out anybody, but some of you are in here. Some have not been here in a while. Because life has been difficult. The prognosis is difficult. 
the treatments are hard. Or maybe the brokenness of relationship or circumstances or the job or the finances or the emotional stability or the waywardness of children or grandchildren weighs. And you might be really battling this where you are, where you find yourself, the, the circumstances that you're living under, the pressure that you're living in. And I would invite you to do that which the, Jesus was inviting the disciples to do. I'd invite you to look at it in the perspective of God. See it from where God is. For if your faith is in God who sent His Son, then what you're finding is not punishment, not rejection, not shame, not humiliation. What you will find is God's love and acceptance and His joy, even in the midst of very difficult circumstances. When it comes down to this, the cross, what Jesus is accomplishing on the cross is all things become new. So it's there on the cross that God is making all things new. No matter the circumstance that you're going through, from the vantage point of the cross, Christ can make all things new in that. Will it come out as you wanted it to come out? Will the results be as you wanted it to be? Maybe not. It wasn't for the disciples either. But in the end, they came to the summary. Oh, God is making all things new. I pray that God would give you such a perspective. And for those of you who are still in your sin, you feel the weight of that, that the Holy God measures your life, I want you to know with all certainty, God can make your life new. I can testify to that because he's done it in my own life. He's made me new. So join him in that work. Now probably every one of us want to live a life that's significant. I don't think there's anybody that would come to me after the service and say, you know, Randy, I was really hoping to live the rest of my life as insignificantly as possible. Nobody says that. In fact, we all want to have a significant impact in the world. Now, you might get sidetracked in that, and you might get on a counterfeit of some sort, but deep down inside you, there is a longing for you to make an impact. There's something about you thinking about one day when your life is over on this world that somebody would say, you know, that person really made an impact in my life. There's a mom here today who wants the children to say of their mother, she really impacted our life. There's a co-worker here today that wants other co-workers to say at the conclusion of your days, number one, he sure did live a long time, and number two, what an impact he made in my life. Nobody wants to be viewed over in a casket and then say, wow, he just had no impact whatsoever in this world, did he? Nobody wants that. Deep settled in us is this desire to make an impact. I think it's because we're made in the image of God, and God is making a great impact in the world. I think it's because God has given us a, an eternal assignment from heaven to bear his image and to live out his purposes. And that is resonating with you. The problem is our sin and our old way of life impedes that. It distorts the vision that we have made in the image of God and it distorts the purposes of God for our life. It makes it so we can't engage the purposes of God very well. We're not very effective and we get incredibly frustrated. You see a little bit of this today in the passage that we're reading. If you look at the, the whole passage again, 
what we all want to do is find life. Now, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and when I was growing up, people would say things like this. Maybe, maybe this will uh, date you as well. Oh, you know, he's just trying to find himself. You remember that craziness going on? What they're saying is he's just trying to find life. Jesus is saying, if you're trying to find life, stop looking for it. Put an end to your life and live my life. You're going to have to lose life as you've been searching for it in order to find it in me. You've got to quit running here, there, and yonder trying to make something significant happen in your days. Surrender your life and you'll find it in me. So whoever loses his life, for my sake, Jesus says, he will find it. And certainly God is allowing that in Christ Jesus. So what he's doing on the cross is saving us of our sins so that one day we can go to heaven. But don't stop there. He's saving us on the cross so one day we will go to heaven. And in the meantime, he gives us great redemptive, purposeful ministries in which we can engage and have significant impact in the world. All right, catch this. Jesus is not just restoring us on the cross. Jesus is giving us the purpose of being restorers in this broken world. Now, I've been living for 52 years. And there's been some troubled times in the early, early years of Gunner's life. Where I didn't even recognize what was going on in the 60s. But I've never seen the country as fractured and broken as it is right now. There is such hatred and bigotry, such a mantra of doom, of separation, that you and I need to engage in that conversation. Now be careful, because if you're not thinking with the purpose in the mind of God, you'll begin to put your opinions out there, which might be rooted in the old you. And you might begin forwarding messages of people that don't align with God. If you're not careful, you'll engage in the conversation in a way that is not like what Christ has provided for you from the cross. Because what he was providing from the cross is your restoration. And at the same time he's restoring you, he's calling you and me to be restorers. So our conversation ought to be engaging in a way that restores this nation to unity and to love and grace. It ought not to be anything but that. If your voice is not heard as a restorer, you're not speaking the language of God. And what God is doing on that cross in His Son is He's giving us reconciliation. He is making our account right with Him. He's taking away all the debits of our sin and He's putting into us all the deposits of His righteousness. And in that, He reconciles us before God. And what He does in reconciling us, He says, now I'm going to give you the ministry of reconciliation. There's purpose on that cross. And the purpose is far more than just our eternal life secure in heaven. The purpose is that the kingdom of heaven would be alive in us and engaged in us in this world. That we would go out in the world where it's broken and we would bring the holistic message of the gospel that people can be radically transformed spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, financially, and otherwise. All oh, that we would see the cross is what God is offering for us today. We get a glimpse of this. The moment Jesus dies, you remember there's amazing things that happen in the 27th chapter of Matthew at the moment of Jesus' death. At his death, of course, the, the sky has been blackened for three hours, just 
the whole land dark. At his death, there is a great earthquake, and in the midst of that earthquake, graves are opening up. The temple, which has been divided by a separating wall, that wall has been torn from heaven from top to bottom. In it is the holy pre- where the holy presence of God once was, and God is saying from heaven on high, there is now, by the death of Christ, an open access for all who will come through Jesus to me. But an amazing thing happened at the death of Jesus. The graves opened up with that earthquake. And the saints of God, those who have faith that God would send the Messiah, some of the saints of God were raised out of their graves at the moment Jesus died. Three days later, they're walking in and around Jerusalem making a proclamation of Jesus and his resurrection life. You say, well, shouldn't that have happened at the resurrection? Oh, no. It happens on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus is not only saving us from the enslavement to sin and death, but Jesus is giving us the means by which we can walk in great ministry today, claiming Him to be the resurrection and the life which He is for all people. It's a beautiful understanding of what Christ is doing. So, can I challenge you for a moment? And you be okay with that? Can I just kind of get in your grill for a moment? And you say, okay, go for it, Gunner. I would say if you and I would really attend to the cross, if you and I would really concentrate with the mind of God on the cross, that we would live our life differently. And I'm going to challenge us to live our life as significant as God has provided for us from Jesus on the cross. And what I mean by that is you and I need to engage the kingdom of God with a great sense of adventure. All this talk about safety and security is not of God. Jesus wants us to be adventuresome in the kingdom. He wants us to go local and global and engage people in a way that others would scratch their head and say, why in the world would she do that? And why in the world would he do that? Because of the gospel that the gospel might be known by all the nations unto the glory of God. Could I ask you to dream dreams that are way bigger than you, way bigger than your possessions and way bigger than your goals that you've been in trying to achieve? Could I ask you and me to dream the dreams of God, the vision that he had for you and me before we were put in the world? Could I ask you to do it with the empowerment that is available to us from the cross of Jesus who takes away our sin, which thwarts us from the relationship and the fellowship that we have with God, who takes away our enslavement to the things of the world so that we might engage in the eternal principles of Christ? Could we engage in that way? And man, would our families be different? Would our neighborhoods be different? Would our workplaces be different for people who become revolutionists? who believe that Jesus was creating and bringing about a revolution while he's dying on the cross. Man, do we ever need people today to engage this world at such a level. So what God is doing there on the cross is he is providing the means for a new life and a new way of life. I just encourage us to live out this new way of life with an aggression, with tenacity, like that of the early apostles. Calling us to this new life, Jesus says, now, Randy Meadowbrook, it's going to require your part as well. Christ has fully accomplished his part, but now what's our part? Jesus shows us this in the text. He says, you know, what you're looking for probably in this world is right down here. 
that I will repay you. Now be careful when you hear him say that he's going to repay us. If you're not careful, you'll think like I do. And you'll hear the voice of your mother who says, you just wait till your daddy gets home. Anybody ever heard that before? Yeah, she was in the first service, so I had to tweak that service a little bit and not say those kind of things. Just wait till your daddy gets home and you're thinking, oh, Lord, just wait till you get home. That's not it at all. If your faith is in God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, can you just be released from that untruth? The truth is, Christ has taken all of your sin and regret and failures, put them on, on the cross with him, and God poured out all of his justice, all of his coming home was poured out right then, such that there's not a single drop left for you to have. And so when Jesus says, there's coming a day that I will repay, he's not talking to his followers saying, I'm going to repay you for what you've done wrong. He's saying, I know that this life that I'm calling you to is going to cost you, and you ought to recognize I'm keeping a tab on everything that it costs you, and I will repay you. I'll repay you today, and I'll repay you for eternity. It will be taken care of. And so he says in the beginning of this, hey, if you're looking for the reward, then here's what you're going to have to do. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. That's going to cost you. The Lord knows it's going to cost you. And he says, I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to repay you, each one, according to what you've done. But what does that mean, to deny ourselves? We well, you know the self that we were born with is a sinful self. Nobody had to teach you how to be a sinner. You came prepackaged for that, and so did I. And that old self, we die to. That's what Jesus was doing. He was taking that old self and nailing it to the cross. And so what he's saying is, die to that old selfish way of yours. Die to the old ways that are apart from God. Die to the ways that are apart from his law. Die to that. Be not self-centered any longer. Be selfless. Die to that self. Now think for a minute what your marriage would look like if your wife died to herself and you died to yourself, husbands, or wives, your husband died to himself and you died to yourself and your whole objective in the marriage was to serve and lift up the other. Think about what that would look like. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do. Think what your workplace would look like and how your witness of Christ would be different if you were selfless and chose to lift others and encourage others more than you did yourself think about what it, the impact that we would have the great impact that we would have when we focused not on ourselves but focused on others think about the ministry and the monumental impact we could have if we would put a death to the old self and walk genuinely in the newness of life that is provided for us in jesus christ and in that he's saying Die to yourself. If you want to have the greatest impact in this world that I reward you for, die to self. And then he says, take up your cross. Now, sometimes in the South, amongst the Christians, we say things like, oh, I'm sorry that you experienced this or experienced that. This calamity, that calamity. Oh, it's just my cross to bear. No, that's not it at all. 
The cross to bear that Jesus bore was the will of the Father. Obviously, Jesus did not want to go through the agony of the cross. In fact, his final prayer before the Father that we know about, he's saying, Lord, if there's any way from this to pass from me, let it be. But how did that prayer end? But not my will, but yours be done. That's taking up the cross, following the will of the Father. So he's saying to us, take up your cross, follow my will. Not your will, not your way, but my will and my way. And in the end, I will reward you for that. And then he says, follow me. We usually think of that at a point in time. Oh, just pray this prayer after me and follow Jesus. Uh, it's that and a whole lot more. In, in the original language of the Bible, the way it's written, it's written in a verb form that means continually actioned. Uh, follow me and keep on following me. So I'm choosing to follow you today. It's pretty easy to follow Jesus this morning, isn't it? But tomorrow morning when you're heading back to the office, maybe not so much. Tuesday, when the students go back to school, maybe it's not going to be so easy to follow. Friday night, maybe not so easy. When it's tense in your house, maybe not so much following. But Jesus is saying, I'll reward you for whatever it costs you to follow me. And we're seeing what he's offering to us. Freedom from sin and death but freedom to live life and the glory for the impact that he prescribes for us. That brings us to this last summary point. Taking up your cross, Jesus rewards you today and forever. Could I ask you a few questions? First, is there anything that you're holding on to in your identity that is not the identity of Jesus Christ? Something in your life that was the old you that you're still identified with? You're still identifying yourself in that way? Could you take a fresh look at the cross today and see that God is calling for you to have a new identity in Jesus Christ? May I ask you, please, is there anything that is thwarting the eternal purposes of God in your life? Anything that stands in the way between you being obedient to God Thwarting the purposes of God in your life? What is that that God would say, deny that? Deny the flesh in that way in order to follow me. I'll repay you. Is there anything that identifies you differently than being an image bearer of Jesus Christ? And so would you allow yourself to be identified differently? How are you identified He's an angry man. Or she is this, or she is... How are you identified? And could those identities be transformed by Jesus from the cross? Yes, they can. And I invite you to do so. Now, I pray that God has used His Word today to speak into your heart as He has mine and several others. I'd like for us to end today in a prayer and then a final song in which we might engage God in a response. So with your head bowed and your eyes closed, could I just move us in a prayer? And if what I'm praying resonates to you, then you just quietly pray the same in your heart unto the Lord. Father, I trust you for my life.
I've come to understand your plans for salvation and for life. And I fully embrace it right now. I choose to die to the self-centered life that I've been living. And I choose to die to my will and my way that is different from yours. And I choose to follow Jesus and his new way of life. I reject my old sinful self. And I embrace Jesus Christ and his way with righteousness, hope, and purposefulness. Father, as a new creation, I pursue your significant work. I reject selfishness that will hinder me from your purposes. I deny any part of me that would want safety and security over the advancement of your kingdom. And I ask, Lord, that you help me to treasure the eternal reward more than I would treasure a temporary reward on earth. I trust that what you have begun in me, you will be faithful to complete it to the end. Did you pray that prayer? Say, I did, Pastor. And my friends, God is doing something new in you. So, Father, we thank you for your work. We thank you for your great victory that is ours from that cross of sin and death being done away with for us. We thank you for the resurrection. It certainly authenticated what you were doing on the cross and it made for newness of life for each of us. And we bless you for that today. So I find myself rejuvenated in your spirit and I pray that you're doing the same and others in this room. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.